Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. A really innocent, like yearly examination can remind the body of historical trauma events that aren't medical. And I see this all lots with people that have to get different kind of like sexual organ examinations and you know like like prostate exams or like cervical exams and how it can remind the body of a time that there was um, unwanted penetration even and the doctors uh if they aren't trauma informed they wouldn't think to ask if there's a history of sexual abuse or sexual trauma and without getting that history they could actually you know re-traumatize your body without even trying to Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we explore life through the lens of somatics. I'm Luis Mojica, a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety in themselves. Your turn to learn begins now. Okay, so we are going to talk about medical trauma today. And I was thinking um, just now during our break that people love our team podcast so much because we talk about really heavy things with like ease and, and laughter and irreverence sometimes. So we'll see if that emerged today, but I, I welcome everything. Uh, I, I want to start by saying it's interesting that we're talking about this because I'm currently wearing an Invisalign, you know, I got fitted for it like a month ago. Um, and I had braces for so many years growing up and had endless tooth issues and tooth issues were a big part of some of my medical trauma actually uh so it's interesting we're talking about this now because um i'll go into that story in a little bit uh, but i wanted to start just by 
maybe we could just presence what it means for us, what our experiences have been, then we can navigate it together because it's something a lot of people have and there isn't enough talking about it. But um, why don't we start just by defining it a little bit? Um, <clears throat> you know, I'll start. <laughs> so the thing with medical, the thing with medical trauma, what makes it so inherently traumatic uh, medical intervention is medical intervention has to be invasive it, to be effective. And that's what makes it so interesting. It's an invasion of the body's boundaries, right? So whether it's surgery, whether it's like a broken body part, whether it's a dental you know, exam or even a dental uh, surgery, something has to be permeated that you wouldn't normally allow someone to permeate. Even if you think of like getting an x-ray in your mouth, your mouth hanging open, these weird things were in there, they're taking a picture. Normally you wouldn't be okay with that. So we, we bypass the boundary of the body to get the, you know, to get the exam or to get the intervention, but the body is still dealing with the boundary violation. So what a lot of people don't realize is they'll go get a test or they'll go get um, treatment, especially true for people who have cancer and they have like months and months of treatment. And every appointment, every session becomes a boundary violation that they don't physically feel or notice because they're bypassing or dissociating from their bodies. And then at the end of it, even though the outcome, let's say, could be really great, like someone's cancer-free or your teeth have been fixed or your arm has healed, now you can use it if it was broken, there's months of boundary violations that are sitting in that body part. And that mm -hmm. can be triggered in, in other ways. So I thought maybe, why don't we like make it relational? Let's talk about how we've experienced this so people listening can get a sense of some examples. Who wants to go first? Who wants to talk about their medical trauma first? <laughs> well, I'll go. Um, <laughs> part of there's it is going to be right on cue. <laughs> um, so, Baby so girl. Part of my medical trauma, I would say, is twofold. So there's the medical trauma I've personally incurred. One of the situations that's particularly come to mind was with Khadijah. I had to give birth to her in a hospital, and I knew that was going to be different than my other births. And there absolutely were boundary violations that took place. And that was a conscious decision on my part, given all the concerns about what she might experience as soon as she was born. Um, and then there's also the medical trauma she's incurred in terms of immediately being whisked away into the NICU and then four weeks into her life having to be readmitted into the NICU and then having surgery a week later and then she's going to have another heart surgery um, in, in another week and then all the intermittent poking and prodding that's how it had to go on in an effort to save her life to keep her alive um, so yeah that's that's what I'm bringing into today's conversation I just wanted to, to highlight that boundary violations to keep her alive. I just want everyone to hear that so we can see the when we're saying violations, we're not talking about abuse. That can happen in, in medical instances and situations. We're just talking about like healthy, important voluntary surgery and intervention, a boundary violation to save you, right? Um, Evan, Marika, when are you going to go? Yeah, I think the same for me, it's um, not the same, but for me, I was thinking of um, all of the most horrifying trauma I've had through medical was saved my life. <laughs> so it was very, um, it's easy to make that decision in that moment, but um, the, the years that I just sort of fo just followed it and just went with it and kind of got traumatized in that moment um, are so different from the years that I knew what I needed. I knew that I was going to be going through something 
you know, to prepare for something <clears throat> like I've prepared with you before, before a surgery, mm-hmm. um, which was so different from the other surgeries that I've had. And what was different for you? Like what happened in your body around that? So people can. Well, one, I think I was in my body. Like I remember mm-hmm. one, it might have been before my hysterectomy, like you were, you were helping me get into my body mm-hmm. <clears throat> and also witnessing sort of what I was the most scared of. Um, and just presencing that was really good for me because I realized how much I was bracing and how much um, I was holding on to um, real evidence that <laughs> medical stuff can go sideways, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to sort of let that go. I mean, it wasn't just, and then I let it go, but we really felt into mm-hmm. like, that I was safe right then, you know. Um, which when you say real evidence, you mean historical experiences? You yeah, historic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like there's evidence my body's like, nope, we should not go back to that place. No, yeah. we should not go to the hospital. Like, you know, no, we should not get surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really, um, I appreciated being embodied mm-hmm. and going to the hospital, you know, because I also knew how to um, navigate like what my boundaries were. I asked, I was more of an advocate for myself. Like, I've always had a good advocate in my husband because I disassociate in most medical mm-hmm. appointments. But then over the years, as I've done more of this work, it was like, oh, I don't need anybody there with me anymore. Like, I know how to ask questions. I know how to stay there. I know how to mm-hmm. write notes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to resource myself has been really good um, in, yeah, understanding what I need before I go into an appointment. Or, you know, I just think, like, women have to go get you know, pelvic exams and yeah. you have to do dental things and it's all for the the good of your health. Um, but it's also awful, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, it's not fun. It's hard to be, I think, embodied and also going through what can feel like um, real boundary violation, you know. Um, so... Pause with yeah, that piece because you because what you said was really important about advocating for yourself and expressing boundaries. I want everyone to hear that again because you can't do that when you can't feel your body. And so, like when you said going in this time, I could feel my body going in, and from that felt body, I knew like, oh, don't stand so close to me, or it's a little cold in here, or I need a second, or I can ask a question, or take a breath even. And I, I wanted people to get that so you can understand, let's say, the depth and nuance that arises from embodiment. Because um, it's a common question, like, well, what does being in my body, what's that going to do when I'm going into a situation that's horrible? And it's the last thing you want to do is be in your body. When you're in it, though, you're able to do what Marika's saying, which is, one, you are embodied to your boundaries because boundaries come from sensations. You feel your no, you feel your yes, you feel your breath and your pause. So that, that's that's one part that's important. The other part is what you're saying is also important. When you're embodied, you start to be able to notice the difference of I'm actually threatened or I'm being reminded of past threat. And that overcoupling that happens with medical experiences, especially when you have a history of like painful, traumatic medical procedures, you're going to go in just like you said, bracing and you're already dissociated before you even get to the office. So that, that's this really important input. Evan, what's your experience that you want to presence? Yeah. Um, for me, I don't have a lot of, um, like, surgical history, um, but more so I really just kind of grew up in a doctor's office. I'd have weekly appointments constantly going. Um, you know, I had asthma, 
dermatological issues, allergies. Um, I ended up, I had chronic stomach aches as well, because, um, which I believe now were mostly due to diet and emotional dysregulation. And so I would constantly be in the doctors, like probably once a week, and they would be saying, oh, we don't see anything, um, doing all these tests. And then um, for about, I think, six or eight years, I got allergy shots. So every week or twice a week, sometimes I'd go and I'd get, you know, like six injections in this arm and three in this arm. Um, so a lot of like multiple sustained low-level things. And a lot of times um, I definitely began developing an overcoupling where uh, I spent a lot of time in doctor's offices and at the same time got very few like noticeable results so constant um, and especially with like dermatological issues lots of inflammation stuff there's like a lot of shame and embarrassment that's going in there and then i'm having like multiple doctors look at it without like sometimes doctors wouldn't ask permission and other doctors would get called in they'd be taking pictures of me and <laughs> emailing them to their doctor friends um, so just a lot of stacks of um, like low-level boundary violations that were sustained you know, we so just those of you listening, if you go to the website, I'm sure Evan can put this in the link, actually, in the episode link. There's a webinar on the website about medical trauma and a lot of things you can do. We're going to talk about those things in, in this this uh, episode, but it, it goes much deeper there. One thing Camille and I talk about a lot within the medical industry is how the situation is more transactional than it is relational. Now, I think that has changed so much from when we were younger. Um, I'm sure depending on the person and where you go, it can still be really transactional. But when I go to the pediatrician and my daughter goes to get a shot or something, they pause like, are you ready? I'm like, are you ready? They ne never asked me if I was ready, like ever. There was never a question of me even having a body there. And I think what you're presencing is interesting because when you go into a situation where it is transactional, they're not looking at you as a full complex human. It's kind of a dehumanized experience. And I don't say that like maliciously. I don't think a lot of these people are like evil people. I think they're actually so burnt out and so exhausted from their own empathy of watching people suffer. They don't want to feel. They can't feel. These people aren't even getting, you know, any kind of trauma support themselves of what they see every day. Imagine having to walk into an office every day knowing there's a half a dozen people you have to tell their life will end in five months. That is big. So after doing that for a certain amount of years, you don't have the capacity to even relate to someone. And so I imagine them walking in. I had the same experience, by the way. I mean, having breasts and having cystic acne, taking pictures, touching my body. Oh, what's this about? We never saw this before. And you're just kind of stand, sitting there as this little like 12-year-old, completely exposed, like sometimes completely naked even in my, in my experiences. Just having people stare at you, not relate to you, not ask you if you were cold, not ask if this was okay. And it was so humiliating and so overwhelming. And it would happen over and over and over again. So I wondered if we could expand for a little bit. Um, Camille, I, I like your input too, because you, you've noticed this before. This piece of it being transactional instead of relational and even humanizing the transactional element of it as a trauma response from the, the professionals. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Um... Like was, what I've found, what I find to be interesting about medical practitioners is, is about finding that balance for a lot of them of 
you know, you don't operate on your, your friends and family members because you'll be too invested and you won't be able to make clear-headed decisions. So there has to be a le level of objectivity. But then you can't be too far in, at the other end of being so objective that this person in front of you just becomes a number and you forget that, oh, they're a person. They have hopes, dreams, concerns. They might be someone's child or parent and all these other things. That there is 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 that that middle ground that I think a lot of them are always trying to to balance and they're sort of you know, ebbing back and forth. Um, and like to that point you made about their own experience, that really became clear to me when I was living in the NICU for eight weeks. Like there would be times on end where like I would see a nurse or a surgeon there for like four days. I mean, like I'm living there and I'm seeing you every hour. And I would make comments like, do you, do you live here? Do you ever go home? And they kind of laugh and be like, no, not really. And then, so it really like, it, it, the system is the system that we have. And I think we have to be aware of the impact it has on those. Like if when, when you don't get enough sleep and like you said, when, when you do have to give like really devastating news, I mean, you get the opportunity to give really great news in some cases, but then you also have, you also have to give really devastating news. And is there, you're there to hold somebody, but is anyone there to hold you in mm. that experience? And then without that holding, without that co-regulation, what is that impact on you as a practitioner? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm putting myself in their shoes right now. Um, I had, it, I always say I grew up in a hospital, which is not true. It's dramatic. But when I was 15, I spent a long time in a hospital because my grandma was in the hospital. And we were literally living there. We would take different shifts of sleeping with her because she was so critical. And so I remember similarly seeing these doctors like 16-hour shifts. And I'm thinking about what you're saying Um who's there for them and i'm noticing how the environment is so dysregulating um like the the sterility of it the lights all the beeping mechanical there isn't like an expansion anywhere there was a sanctuary at the one i the hospital i was staying at with my grandmother it was like a little church they had inside very small stained glass it was amazing i would go there and just settle into myself that was the only place in the whole hospital um, that had any kind of like reg regulation. And over the years, I've had the pleasure of working with physicians who do 16 hour shifts and they have these little tiny rooms for them with like a futon, um, but they're on, they're on call so they can lay there and maybe they'll fall asleep for five minutes and then someone bangs on the door or a pager goes off or someone like code red, right? And they have a cold blue and they have to run out the room. And so I remember this one person I was working with, their body was so so exhausted like the adrenal fatigue was at, at the limit a body could handle and i was teaching them about the balancing foods and so they started taking the balancing foods to work and it like greatly changed even their capacity to show up for their patients with more with more empathy because they now they weren't holding the burden of so much adrenaline so i'm, I'm glad you brought that in uh there was something else you said i wanted to respond to and it's, it's leaving me right now. So I'll let it come back when it's ready. Um, but I wondered if, I think one thing that's interesting, oh, I, it just came back. So Fredo, who's my best friend, and he also is a, the great editor of this podcast now, uh, he was telling me the other day that he met a doctor, or a, you know, he, a medical profession, professional person who was told by the company they were like the organization that you know funds them that they can't spend more than seven minutes in a room with a patient 
So I think it's also interesting to hear that a lot of doctors that aren't in their own private practice that are working for an organization or they work somewhere so they can take insurance, like they, they want to be more accessible. So they work in a clinic. There's these incredible rules that they are under just to get the funding to stay open and give affordable care. Seven minutes. I mean, that's intense. So seven minutes with person to person to person over an eight to 10 hour period. Anyone listening can imagine how quick you'll burn out and, and have the inability to relate. Um, just going to pause, see if anyone else wants to throw anything in there about this piece. I'm just thinking about my favorite doctor who yeah. made it so that I had <clears throat> higher expectations for all the other doctors. Mm, how come? Um, I could tell she had work-life balance. Like, which I really liked, you know, she's talking about her vacation. She goes on, she's talking about like, she has to be home by a certain time to get her kids. Both mm -hmm. of them are both her and her husband are very high level doctors. And so they just sort of, but they always knew they were going to have kids. So <clears throat> anyways, it just, it's, um, she just showed care for me in a way that I've never gotten from anybody before. And also no judgment, which I hadn't gotten before either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was just in the way I go to her first before I go to my GP. She's my nephrologist because I have a kidney thing. And she's always sort of been the person that's there. If I'm in a different state or something and I need something like. <clears throat> it just made me realize how little I saw of myself when mm -hmm. I would go to doctors and be like, sorry, <laughs> a yeah. thousand times sorry that I'm coming to you with this, like I'm sick or I, I did this thing and I wasn't supposed to, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, I always felt like bad for being at the doctor and mm -hmm. that I shouldn't be there. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I felt like she, she really helped me understand that I deserved care, good care. And because of her, I ended up um, getting other doctors. Like I realized, you know, I didn't like my GP. I didn't like my other. So I just started looking for people and that felt like a really good way to advocate for myself, like knowing what it is that I want. I'm not going to get in every single doctor, but just when I don't feel cared for, I'm also not really caring about my own stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like she's checking in on me and we have like an email, you know, relationship and that type of thing. So it feels um, like, I feel like I do better with the things I'm supposed to do for my health um, because it's also important to somebody else, you know, mm -hmm. important to both of us. Um, so well, yeah. goes to your earlier point too, is like, if you're with someone that is overseeing you, if you're in your body, you can then advocate. Yeah, and like, I felt like, like I could be in my body with her. It took a while. Yeah. I mean, and it was stuff like she just noticed that I was always dissociated when I would be in my appointments, and then I would forget everything she'd said. So then oh she, my started gosh, yeah. me to, she started asking me to bring my mom or my husband. So I did. Yeah, yeah. so she witnessed that. Yeah, and so then she had a relationship with them, with both of them. And we just figured out I felt really um, held, you know, mm -hmm. and seen by this person who I'd had a nephrologist just before, and it was very, it was more transactional nice person i guess but like it just the the contrast was like i didn't know that you could be treated that way by a doctor yeah i can relate to that because i had this doctor for a long time that i felt that way where i was like oh i'll go there just to get the checkup i couldn't wait till it was over there was no i felt no co-regulation or kindness or like really quick like really invasive abrasive experiences and then i recently found this doctor and he's from germany 
And I remember he said to me, like, Luis, there's three things in this life you have to be aware of stress, sugar, and watching the news. And I was like, girl, <laughs> can you be, be my doctor for life? And then we were at the Menla retreat. Um, the, those of you listening that we did a retreat at this place called Menla in upstate New York. Um, he was in the retreat center meditating. I saw him on the, the lawn. I was like, okay, I, I somehow got, I got the doctor lottery, but it's the first time in my life. I found a doctor where I feel like can really kind of see me and he's slow and he's sweet. And he's like, thinks outside of the box. Like he trusts the body. He believes in the body. He's not seeing it as this thing he has to like control or, or fix. Well, I also felt like the, <clears throat> I'd never had trust like that with a doctor before. Mm -hmm. I was fairly distrustful mm -hmm. and I've spent a lot of time in ERs and, um, it was so helpful for me when I had to have surgery, when I was, when I was almost dying, you know, mm. all these things were happening that I could attune to this one person who I knew was going to tell me the truth. Yeah. I knew really cared about the best outcome for me, you know, and yeah. really has always steered me in the right direction. I've been, there are blind faith times that I've had to be like, okay, I trust you. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if we hadn't had that kind of relationship um, and I hadn't met her. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I just, I just knew that I could trust her and trust her word. Even you saying there's blind faith time, it, it just really puts into perspective how intimate that relationship is between your body and, and a doctor. It's someone that you're literally trusting with your life at times. Uh, it's not a light thing, and so it's it's nice if we can feel into our bodies as we're looking for doctors, and and if we can find someone that we feel safe with or find someone we relate to or find someone that takes time with us and we can have, have a nourishing you know, relationship if we have that time and circumstance because it's, it's such a deeply intimate experience. Hey, my friends, I created a space that is affordable, accessible, and anyone is allowed to join anytime and it's called the Library Membership. The Library Membership is an online private platform that hosts dozens of my webinars, my somatic practices, private mini lectures, and movement practices. There's also a monthly sound healing, and you'll be invited to a weekly Tuesday live mini practice with me and other participants. You'll also be invited to be a live audience member in our monthly HLN team podcast recordings, where you'll take place in the Q&A that happens off air after the episode is filmed. For more information on this membership, click on the link below or go to holisticlifenavigation.com and click on membership and then library. You can join right now and you can cancel or pause your subscription at any time. I look forward to seeing you in there. Um, I wonder, you know, if we could talk about how one, one piece of medical trauma that makes it uh, even more complex is the, um, let's say... Uh, like a really innocent, like yearly examination can remind the body of historical trauma events that aren't medical. And I see this a lot with people that have to get different kind of like sexual organ examinations and you know, like, like prostate exams or like cervical exams and how it can remind the body of a time that there was um, unwanted penetration even. And the doctors, uh, if they aren't trauma-informed, they wouldn't think to ask if there's a history of sexual abuse or sexual trauma. And without getting that history, they could actually, you know, re-traumatize your body without even trying to. 
Um, I don't know if any of you have anything with that, whether it's personal or just you want to weigh in about that. Um, but I'm, I was curious. So I had an interesting experience as a, a child. I didn't experience uh, uh, sexual assault or sexual mis mistreatment, but I had chronic um, uh, uh, urinary tract infections as a kid, like from five to 13, had them like once a month and no doctor could figure out like what was up with me. And so at one point they wanted to do some sort of procedure. I can't even remember exactly what it was to to basically explore, um, you know, my vagina and everything in I remember sitting on a table and I was holding my dad's hand and something went in me and it, I don't remember like anyone ever talking to me either mm. before or after. I just remember holding my dad's hand and like squeezing it really hard. And then it was over, but that's the kind of thing, like particularly with a child, I think could have gone slower or there could have been more context, but then there's, there's that thought of, we won't tell her anything. We'll just get it done. And then that yes. way she won't freak out. And I think it would have settled or sat better in my body. And I'm really curious about how that continued to impact me going forward. That was just mm. kind of like this thing and no one prepared me for it. And then it was over and okay, I'm fine. Mm. I mean, as you're saying it, that, that situation in and of itself was like a very violating situation, especially that age when you're still developing and you probably haven't had any penetrative experience at that time that were voluntary. Exactly. So that's a really big thing. Uh, that that's important to me for people to hear, especially because I, I know a lot of health professionals listen to our podcast. So it's really good for people listening to consider whenever you're walking to the room with that patient, really look at their history. And if you are doing anything that involves their body, especially sexual organs, to ask them directly, you know, do you have a history of sexual trauma? And then you can renegotiate the boundaries with that person. You know, you can say, do you want someone here with you? You can say, are you ready for this procedure today? This is exactly what I'm going to do. Are you okay with that? And having that kind of back and forth lets you pause and reassess, am I okay with that? Yeah, actually, I can do that right now. Like you said, you, there's that moment of questioning, even for a 13, how you were 13 when it's happened? When I was young, I was probably more around 10. Okay, so even younger, mm -hmm. especially for a 10-year-old. And we tend to do this thing with children. You see it a lot at daycares where it's like the drop-off, where you drop yeah. them off and you run before they can see you leave. Exactly. And it's like it's so traumatic to do to yeah. your child because they're like, wait, my parents just gone and with these people. And they go into freeze and fawn and everyone thinks that means they're totally okay and having a great time. Uh, mm -hmm. But that piece of that consent with your body, so important, so important. I, what I'm, The only reason I'm here, I think, talking about trauma with everybody is because I had a traumatic dental experience where this dentist, this was in 2015, this dentist had, um, I was exploring focusing and, and somatic body work, but I wasn't, I, the word trauma meant nothing to me at the time. And I was um, getting my teeth examined. I had, I didn't have healthcare, so I didn't go to a dentist for like six years. And I was an intense cigarette smoker and my teeth were like wrecked. I mean, like we're talking like eight, nine cavities, rotted roots, like having to remove teeth, like five, six years of dental surgery to get it up to date. And when they were starting, they hit a nerve and the nerve um, shot down to my stomach. And the feeling I had in my stomach when I was leaving, when I was in the car driving home, was the same feeling I had after I was sexually assaulted, the same feeling. And suddenly all the images came up that I had repressed. And it was like that, that procedure wasn't even inherently abusive. 
but the way it felt and the invasiveness of it reminded my body of these past experiences and it awakened this whole uh, firestorm um, of PTSD that I hadn't, I hadn't experienced since I was a teenager. And then that got me really curious about um, somatics. I was from one psychiatrist to another that I found the somatic therapist, thank goddess, who was like, how does that feel in your body? I was like, I have a body, you know, but I wanted to bring that in because I think it's an important piece where even if the situation itself, like the procedure itself isn't violating, totally fine. Like you're having a good time. Your teeth are looking better. What it feels like to the body can remind the body of a past experience. And I kind of wonder with you, Evan, like with especially the dermatological where your skin's being examined and poked and photos, like where do you notice that overcoupling still show up or where has it shown up later in unrelated places? If, if it has, I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, I think just generally with like any sort of boundary violation, I just think that overcouplings are so present in general. Like I don't, I also, I don't have any specific memories previously in childhood of, of any sexual abuse, although I've always been very uncomfortable, like either one, just being seen by a lot of people or two, especially undressing either like in changing rooms or especially in front of doctors. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, um, again kind of going back to like what Rachel was saying that when there is um i guess like the counter vortex to whatever is happening um even if it's a, vi a boundary violation so like i had um an allergy doctor and he would administer the shots but i was like i don't know like eight or ten and he always would um he'd get those like uh, sticky gels from like the 25 cent machine mm -hmm. where like there's like little hands or oh yeah the hands. so he'd like do the shots and then be like whoa and like throw like a lizard that would go down the wall <laughs> or he'd be like sorry i have to sneeze and he'd like sneeze one of them into his hand <laughs> and, and like i i somehow left the, all those like i'm so fine with the shots mm -hmm. and i before i went i mean i would be terrified i would have to put on like the numbing agents and mm -hmm. spend like three days before just a total wreck um Whereas I've also gone to dermatological appointments that were just nightmares and um, like, I, mean, I guess I'll share this live, whatever. Um, I, I had an experience. So I'm also, um, I have multiple chemical sensitivity. So I'm allergic to certain chemicals, like very allergic, uh, which causes a lot of medical mysteries until I figured that out. And mm -hmm. especially going into doctor's offices and you can smell the Lysol and the, the things that are being used to clean and keep it safe from germs in one way but also i can have a lot of serious reactions to those i'll get fibromyalgia and um i it's i somehow ingested a small amount of cleanser at one point recently um i mean recently this was like maybe 10 years ago um and the inflammation just traveled from my mouth through all my organs you know out when i passed it through my genitals so i had insane inflammation um and right and a doctor had come in and then just invited another doctor in and they're taking photos and it turned into this whole thing and everyone left. And even though I don't have a direct overcoupling that it reminded me of that event in itself, like just stuck with me for like two years mm. um, because it just, it happened and it was like a lot of people involved. It was so transactional. I remember being so dissociated from my body that I just felt like I was like on display and then it was over and everyone was gone. Um, and like, no, just, like there is definitely, it feels like there may have been an overcoupling there that I'm not sure of, but then the other part of it is just that because there was nothing to, there was no source of co-regulation. There was no, I'm still in the doctor's office. I still have to like, you know, navigate my way out and 
yeah. billing, which is a whole <laughs> yeah. secondary overcoupling of going to the doctor and figuring out if my insurance works or not. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's where I'm going with it. Yeah. I mean, when you're saying that is bringing another layer that these experiences are relational. So there's a relational trauma mm-hmm. experience here. Totally. So even when you leave it, right, that there's that rupture, um, particularly in this case with your body and being seen and being respected, being seen, then that rupture kind of can go out relationally to other places. Like when you said changing in front of people, there's like a fear, you know, that it makes sense. The body would brace because it's used to being kind of objectified and on display in this very cold way. So there's a, there's going to be a clenching and a protection around that. Last year, the first time I ever went to a dermatologist for like skin cancer stuff, I, I didn't have skin cancer, but they just do these like uh, scans, these body scans when you're, you're, especially when you're fair skinned and you spend a lot of time in the sun and going to Puerto Rico so much, you know, I got really tanned. And so certain little freckles would get darker or bigger. So you have to get them looked at every year. And um, I never did it before, but you go into this room and it's like the brightest room you've ever been in. And you have to take everything off except for your underwear. And there's like someone in the corner writing and the doctor's just examining you. And there was never a moment of just so you know, there's going to be somebody watching you. And, um, and, and you just sit there on the t- table for like 20 minutes till they come in and they just walk in and it's so, and they're like pulling your underwear up and looking at your butt cheeks. Like, it's like so crazy, but there's no, there's no, uh, there's no warning. And for someone like me, who, like I said, grew up and my puberty was so weird, you know, because of being estrogen dominant, it was like, I'm so used to doctors, like pulling up my shirt and showing it to the assistant, like making a note. And so to have, them not warn me i could feel my body going to this like huge flight response like get me the fuck out of here but then like marika said i I was able to stay in my body with these practices and say okay this one part wants to get the fuck out the other part wants to fight the other part's shutting down but there's this one part that's actually okay with this like this is what they need to do to see me they didn't think to tell me what do i want to do i have agency i'm not a child like i was and the uncoupling got to emerge and so this year when I went to get the scan, it was like a breeze. I was like, look at me anywhere. Do what you want. I'll do, I'll do ballet for you. I'll go into like, you know, goddess pose, <laughs> whatever you need to do. And it just felt, I felt so uh, alive with it. And it was a huge difference from last year to this year, but it was from, like Marika said, that embodiment piece. And that brings me into what I wanted to bring up earlier based on Khadija, boundary renegotiation. And that's like a term what everyone listening to here, boundary renegotiation. When you have medical trauma, it comes because the boundaries are violated. So boundary renegotiation is how you take that, let's say a stored energy that wanted to push or say no, or, you know, say, give me a minute. It sits in you. And so when you go to the doctor, it's bracing and waiting and expecting to be repressed again. But the boundary renegotiation is like what Mariga brought up. You feel your body and then you get to advocate based on what your body's telling you. So I'm curious if we could all give an example of how we've played with boundary renegotiation, which includes telling doctors boundaries, but it also includes pendulation. It includes what I said earlier just now about how I was able to tell myself, wait, I'm choosing to be here. I want this scan. I'm not a child. That's a boundary renegotiation because I have more agency. So it doesn't feel as violating. And I wonder as a mama, you know, how you, you've told me before and I love it. Like the changing diapers example is a really good one. Like how you know, well, Khadija has been so boundary violated already. How do you show her body that you respect it? So let's all, let's all do that. But I want to start with you, Camille. Like where, where do you go with any of that? Yeah. So, so I'll start with, uh, Khadija first. So, um, 
one, like just the emergence coming out of anesthesia, particularly after after her first surgery, it, uh, it was interesting because the doctors were like, okay, I just want to warn you about this thing called emergence delirium. She said she might be all crazy, and we don't, but it's, we we don't know why. I was sitting there like, I know exactly why, and I don't <laughs> think right. it's crazy. I don't. Like, think I saw it's the delirium. video, bitch. Yeah, I saw exactly. Video. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> but that just the term because i even asked i was like out of curiosity why do you call it emergence delirium and he said well it's just the industry term but that really just speaks to the connotation we put around movement and the reintegration and the renegotiation of boundaries like imagine if we didn't call it emergence delivering what if we call it emergence reorganization or emergence reintegration or even just emergence knowing that okay this is a part of the body coming out of a state where it wasn't able to establish its boundaries. So that was one of the first things like I want in myself, like as she's coming out of anesthesia, I didn't want myself, the nurses or the doctors to freak out. This is just what her body is doing. Um, and then after that initial phase, it was- Can we, can we just stop there a minute? Cause yeah, that's absolutely. what you said about delirium is so important. I just wanted everyone to kind of hear that again. Like that's a huge- the associations that come with delirium being exactly. what's emerging rather than the reality, like, no, the boundaries are emerging that were violated. Imagine the shift for both the doctors and the patients that they were educated, like, hey, you might be really angry for days after your anesthesia yes. wears off. That's because your fight response you know, was, was oppressed by the anesthesia. That's amazing. So how was that for you as a somatic practitioner to kind of like realize the system of the language even creates this negative connotation with what your body wants to do when, when you come out? Oh, it was it, again, like sort of just witnessing. It was just like, Hmm, that's curious. Like, <laughs> so like I'm in the room and I, so I asked them like, why do you call it that? And they just, the industry term is what we do. But like, so, so, or I'll say like a couple of instances along this journey with her, they would just kind of look at me like, you're not bothered by this. Oh, uh, they're like, no, I'm actually, I'm actually, I would be happy to see her in the delirium. Like, I, I hope that yeah. happens. I hope she, she gets angry. Um, and, and I just think this, there was a bit of surprise that I had capacity for that or to see her like that. Mm. Um, but again, mm -hmm. to your, to, to your point, like what, just the connotation of the word delirium, whether it's the practitioner or the patient, like the impact that has on us and how we judge our need to reintegrate. And because of that term, there may be the desire to suppress it. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Or even just the coaching of parents. Like, again, it's an industry yeah. term, emergence delirium. So if I'm a practitioner telling a parent that, hey, you know, your child might have emergence delirium, then what kind of position does that put me in? I, mm -hmm. I, if, if I didn't have my somatic background, I, that would make yep. me really anxious. And yep. like, oh my God, my, my child is going to go into delirium. <laughs> See, what you just said was the key to me. If I didn't have my somatic background, because I, I heard what you said where the doctor said, wow, we're amazed you have the capacity for this. Mm -hmm. That tells you that they're used to parents being really dysregulated by seeing yes. their child like have these emergent, you know, boundary, boundary mm -hmm. renegotiations coming through. Really, these emergent repressed trauma responses are what we're seeing. So it again, it just it speaks to our cultural ignorance. That's yes. not a judgment, but like actually not knowing ignorance of what the body does and why it does it. And so you see your child doing that, like writhing or yelling, and you'd be like, oh no, what's wrong with them? Mm -hmm. But when you are somatically informed, you're like, excellent, cry, kick, scream, spit, like the mm -hmm. animal body is doing what it couldn't do under the anesthesia. 
anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about when I said, bitch, I saw the polar bear video, go to YouTube, type in polar bear coming out of freeze. <laughs> it will all make sense to you there. So, guys, sorry, Kim, I just had to like put a pin in that. No, that's... Um, but yeah, like I have this thing I like to say with her. I was like, yeah, tell them why you mad. Like whenever she gets angry, it's because it's, it's, <laughs> it's for her, but it's also for me. Like, yes, yeah, I was gonna say. perfectly, perfectly fine. Tell them why you mad. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when she gets a little, little upset, um, and I wanted to continue that space. So even when she's in space with me, you know, we've been out of the hospital a couple of months now, I invite her or give her space to like push my hand away or kick mm -hmm. my hands away and show her that I, again, tell her why you're mad or that's so good. Like just to let her know there's nothing wrong with you pushing people away. That's exactly mm -hmm. what you're supposed to be doing. Or when I do need to approach her, you know, with something just as simple as needing to change her diaper, I probably go really, really slow relative to other people's perceptions because I like to lay her down and then like raise up my hands and let her orient to my hands. And then one of the cues that I like to look for is her hands. So if her hands are super, super clenched or if they're out straight like this, mm -hmm. that's a signal to me she's not ready yet. But when they're soft and hanging like this, that's the signal that, okay, we can proceed. So I like to take my time, even with something like changing her diaper. And like we said, there are going to be times where I, I, not even a medical practitioner, I may have to violate her boundaries. And right. I want to do so in a way that's co-regulatory and also establishing space where she can reaffirm her boundaries. Everybody listening, this is why Camille is my co-teacher in the parenting group. I mean, many than everything I do, but the parenting group especially, because you really get that uh, there's a nuanced art of parenting where it's my job to sometimes break your boundaries and it's my job to simultaneously co-regulate and validate me breaking your boundaries. And how do I do both? Because we have parents that either just break and don't validate the child or they're just in the validate and they have no boundaries with the child and the child runs amok. And be able to pendulate between the two, especially when there's medical trauma or any kind of violation, just gorgeous. It touches my heart so much to think of you pausing, putting your hands up, watching for her to be soft in her hands rather than stay away or clench. It's just so mm -hmm. touching. Um, and, and a great example for those of you listening, when your kids do have medical trauma, birth is often a huge trauma for kids. I'm not obviously the parents well, but for the kids coming out, it can be a, they're they're stuck in the canal for a while, or something was used to suction them, or there were pliers, or they weren't breathing. That's a body trauma that child will remember. So these little things, just like Camille said, with changing a diaper, that can help them renegotiate their boundaries to something that's that's possibly threatening or overwhelming them. I'm curious, Marika, when you hear this this nuance around the boundary renegotiation, like. Do you want to share an example of how you've done that now that you're more embodied or just anything that comes to mind? Yes, this okay. is what came to mind. Um, and anybody out there who has had a transvaginal ultrasound uh, will understand because it's not fun. Do you want to explain uh, what that is for people listening? Yeah, it's like an ultrasound where they need to put like a very giant wand in your vagina. And 45 minutes later, wow. you wake up like... And they're like putting. So you're under anesthesia when it happens. No, no, no. I just meant like I was very dissociated the first time. Got it. it Got it. Uh, the first time it happened, uh, I just sort of went in, and I'm like, hopefully this will be quick. Don't make a big deal. Yeah. Um, don't make. And a big they deal. didn't prep me or anything. They were just like, do this, and then I was like, whoop, something was inside of me. 
And then something happened with the ultrasound machine, and she said, oh, we all just learned this yesterday. <laughs> like, this new program. And it's not working. Let me call Steve in here. So now here comes Steve. And I'm just like... <laughs> yeah. Steve couldn't figure it out. So Steve's like, let's call in Doug. So then Doug came in. So now it's a party. It's me, my vagina, and a bunch of people I don't know. Uh, and so... <laughs> It was horrifying and mm. embarrassing and mm. very physically uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just didn't feel... I left there being like, I probably could have done that differently. But I, I just was so... I usually bring my husband with all my to my appointments. And they said he couldn't come in. So then I felt extra like I didn't have my backup. Um, so here's the difference between that transvaginal ultrasound and the last one that I had. Because I had many in 2021 uh the last one it's like came in i brought my husband i had my biggest stuffed animal that <laughs> I love, a giant whale with me i had a very small fleece blanket because soft stuff make, keeps me grounded mm -hmm. i talked to the gal before i got undressed about like what i'm most comfortable with like that i wanted to put the wand in by myself which was really helpful um and that anytime I say stop, I need her to stop, um, which I think was very good for the overcoupling of from being assaulted. Oh my goodness, yes, really having really. Ha but also because it was the maybe fourth one I'd had in that month, I was really like sensitive. So we said that to the doctor ahead of time, and they gave me just a little bit of I don't know what the medicine was, but it was a pain pain pill mm -hmm. basically. So then I I only felt like you know, 15% of it, really. And it was such a, not a great experience, but it was so amazing compared to the first experience, mm. you know, and to have mm. somebody's hand to hold and to have my little stuffed animal and like to have negotiated with her ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because yeah, nobody ever said like, what would make you most comfortable or right. have you done this before? Like, what are you worried about? Like there right. was a lot of that. And right. so I'm like, instead of being mad that they don't do that because you know i wish they did i was just like well we can try and do as much as we can you know right. our end and it went faster and i didn't feel as much and i felt really good about it um, i don't want to do any more of them in my lifetime yeah yeah you're not <laughs> but like, if i do i'm, I'm like i know that. that i know how you know which is different. that is amazing rick i'm so inspired by that i mean what an especially that that i'm like hearing this phrase you said the first one don't make a big deal. I want everyone to hear that again. That's huge. That that story in our mind, don't make a big deal. That's the fawning story. So when we don't want to make a big deal, we'll fawn. We'll perform that it's not a big deal, that we're just fine. And then we'll dissociate from the place that's like, this is actually a big deal. And I, I love that you brought that in because so many of us will go into medical experiences and we go in fawning. We go in ready to not make it a big deal. And we don't presence our bodies and how we feel or questions we have what we need. And I love how you made it a big deal next time. And not like in a negative way, big deal, but you prioritized it. Like I brought a stuffy. I brought a fleece. I brought my co-regulator. I put the wand in myself. I gave boundaries. Like that is gorgeous. So proud of you. That's amazing. Well, and then, you know, I'm very food motivated. So I was like, and we're going out for dinner after this. Oh, you know it. <laughs> reward. Oh I love a food reward. You Give me know. a food reward. Okay. Y'all should have seen the food reward that Marika got me in Portland after our last 
after our last retreat. I was I'm like, are you ready that. to eat like a Taurus? And he was like, bring yeah. it. <laughs> she did. And she ordered everything. It was amazing. Like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, oh, that was, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. What about you, Evan? What comes up around this boundary negotiation piece? Yeah, I love those examples. It's all the different resourcing. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I feel like what came up for me is pretty simple, but um, yeah, just the beauty of pendulation where, mm -hmm. um, and even taking something super simple as like the least charged is just a routine checkup. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the last one I went to, I had gone in and I was kind of feeling pretty embodied when I started. And then, you know, in the waiting room for, I don't know, 20 minutes and I'm trying to like, I'm looking at the fish. I'm kind of looking for sources of co-regulation, but then before you know it, like 20 minutes has gone by, I'm completely dissociated on my phone and they call me and I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta come back. So Wait, is it because of us? Are you doing like HLN emails or is this a... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this was a voluntary dissociation that was on Instagram. Um, <laughs> or maybe not voluntary, but, um, definitely not work related. That way. Um, and then, so just getting just getting into the room and they're like okay the doctor or the nurse will be in soon and then really just taking a minute to look around the room and take it in like notice that i'm here now I don't have to be anywhere else i've decided to come here mm -hmm. um and then of course i i tune to the things i dislike first um naturally so i'm looking at the tongue depressors which i always hate <laughs> um you know noticing like the where the needles are kept noticing the lysol that I'm scared is going to cause some reaction in me. I'm noticing it's kind of cold in the room, but then also, you know, shifting over and noticing like what parts can notice, like how comfortable can I get where I'm sitting and what parts of me can feel supported. And, oh, I see some trees out the window and let me take some time with that. And, oh, that's a nice painting where what part of my body can experience that painting. Um, and just trying to just hold both so that I'm a little more embodied when you know, the nurse or the doctor actually comes in and I have a conversation. Mm. That, I'm so glad you brought pendulation in as an example, because each of you brought these amazing examples of how boundary negotiation and renegotiation can happen in these medical settings. And Marika's is like really direct. Like, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. Like hers is very much about expressing boundaries. And Camille's is very much about noticing her daughter's physical boundaries and then responding relationally to it. And yours is about noticing what parts of my body can experience pleasure and safety based on where I'm orienting. And that's the, the, the beauty of pendulation is it teaches us there's multiple things going on at once. So when I walk into a room and I don't know about pendulation, I orient primarily to what's unpleasant. And when I'm orienting primarily to what's unpleasant, I will very quickly flood with activation and I'll dissociate. And then Spin back to what Marie said in the beginning. When you're not in your body and you're in these situations, you don't even know what your body wants. You can't have boundaries. You can't feel what you need. So pendulation is also my favorite because I told you my whole somatic journey awakened from the medical the traumatic experience with a dentist reminding me of this uh, sexual uh, violence. And so for a good six years, I got to practice because I had so much dental surgery for six years straight. And pendulation has been my primary practice because when you're in the dentist chair, you can't speak. Like you're numb, your mouth is open. You can do this and it'll stop, but you, you can't really express as much as you'd like to or you'll be there longer than you want to be. So pendulation is what 
I play with. I feel my feet. I'm like, oh, they feel good. I feel their hand against my mouth. I'm a very touch-oriented person, so even like a dentist <laughs> glove will feel good. Like just feeling their hand there, I'm like, ah, oh, there's a, a body. You know, any music playing, the trees out the window, and I'll feel the softening happen. And then the drill, and then activation, and then softening. And because it's able, the nervous system can go back and forth, I don't dissociate. I leave pretty happy. I feel pretty centered. And there's not a lot of recovery time. But if we go into these and we don't know about somatics, we don't know how to relate to the body, there's a lot of recovery time afterwards, isn't there? Right? Because we're completely overwhelmed by the sensation that we can't feel in the moment, then it comes out slowly over a period of time afterwards. This is a real, this is a gift to people, this conversation, because each of you have helped me express your own personal experiences so we can kind of get a little idea of how we advocate for ourselves and be more embodied in these situations. Um, does anyone want to add anything short to close? Because it's time to do our private Q&A with our members. No, no, I don't feel like it can be short. We didn't end up going off. <laughs> yeah, no, cutting you off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm cutting you off there. <laughs> Let's do that. We'll do that afterwards. I just want to say I appreciate the space to just kind of talk about this, especially I feel like it's so rarely discussed in general in a lot of spaces. Um, obviously, it's not really discussed in the medical space is kind of the, <laughs> the point here. Um, but yeah, just to be able to presence it and discuss it and just kind of put it out there for other people to, you know, think about and maybe discuss with other people is, is really wonderful. I, I agree. I agree because I also like that it's not just, it's not about story. Like, um, I mean, obviously we've told a little bit of the stories and stuff, but I find when I'm talking about this with other people in life, it's about like the worst thing that ever happened, like the worst story, the worst, you know, and it's like one of being, and it's very, it isn't about relating, you know, mm. it's kind of about like trauma bonding, I guess, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Thank you all so much. Thank you all for listening. And if you want to be part of our live recorded podcast and the Q&A afterwards, just go to the link below. You can join the library membership. It will get you access to that. Okay, see you next time. That's the end of today's episode. Now let's take a moment to notice where we feel the episode in our bodies. Close your eyes. Take a breath. And let whatever wants to come up, come up. And remember... Those sensations hold the wisdom that we're looking for. If you want to go deeper, visit holisticlifenavigation.com. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, 
and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.